0: So today we're covering, um, it's not the final letter, it's actually the sixth letter to the churches in Revelation. Uh, this one is to, specifically to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, but first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, this morning, to be able to come together and worship and uh, be edified by your word. Lord, I pray that you bring the gospel home to our hearts today. And that we learn things that we can practically and immediately apply in our lives, um, as every word that you have written is profitable for us in that regard. Lord, I thank you for this uh, time to come together and, and to uh, to learn, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so to start, I'm going to read the, <coughs> um, if you're following along in your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. For John is writing to the church at Philadelphia. Now we see here explicitly, this is Jesus speaking, the uh, red letters, as it were. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the King of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name, he who has an ear, Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So some very interesting words that Christ says here. Um, I'm sure a lot of them stuck out to you like they did me. My goal here is to get us to answer the questions for ourselves. What are the correlations of these letters to us personally, to the local church, and to the church universal? In other words, how do they apply? Now, as you see, I premised your notes with two passages talking about the importance of understanding that every word of Scripture is profitable for us and that we are to feed on that word as our daily bread. So the Church of Philadelphia, interestingly enough, now we know that Philadelphia is known for the word Philadelphia means brotherly love, right? I always wondered how did it get named Philadelphia? Was it because the people in the city were just so loving to one another? But the reality is it was named after a little brother. King of per- uh, Pergamum, if I, I can say that correctly, he had a little brother that expected to secede him in the throne and he named that city after his little brother um, and it translated to Philadelphios. Okay. The name does mean brotherly love, and this this was the, this city was the youngest of the seven cities within the, the seven letters, and was originally founded as a missionary outpost for Hellenism. Now, if you're not familiar, Hellenism was just the Greek culture. That's, it was another word for Greek culture. The original purpose behind this city was to make it a center for spreading the Greek language, the culture, and the manners throughout the Asian provinces. Now, it had been built with the deliberate intention that it might become a missionary city. Because beyond Philadelphia lay the wilds of uh, Phrygia and the barbarous tribes. And it was intended that the function of Philadelphia should be to spread the Greek language, the culture, and the way of life. Now, it, as I said before, it gained the name after its founder, Atelus, who was nicknamed actually Philadelphios. Okay. Now, I thought I had printed out. I thought I did. Maybe i put it later in the notes. In the Bible, when we see the word love, there's three different types of of love spoken of in in the Bible. And most of you are probably familiar with this. You have uh, agape, which is unconditional love, eros, which is the love that you would have for a spouse, and then felipe, which is a brotherly love that you would have for as your brother and sister in Christ. Um, Philadelphia was a prosperous city. And it And had one of the greatest highways in the world and it led from Europe to the east. It was the gateway from one continent to another. It was known as the gateway from Greek civilization or Roman civilization rather to the eastern or Asian civilization so it was kind of uh, the end of the well as you can see here the highway and I should have drawn this the highway there was one coming in this way to the port of Ephesus And I think there was another one coming out. I think it was around Laodicea, but two highways, actually, and one of them was known to be a very busy highway. Now, Jesus describes himself to the church at Philadelphia, and this is what I want you to focus on, is how Jesus premises each one of his letters. Because when we see the character of Christ describing himself, it is distinctly different than the idea of Christ that we have may gathered from what we read in the Gospels or in the Testaments, Okay. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. These things says he who is holy, he who is true. What is he talking about here? Jesus reminded the church in Philadelphia that he was holy and true. Now these do not describe, these words, this holy and true do not describe tendencies, but this is his being. It's not something that he did, it's something that he is. He's holy and he's true. When you and I think about the words holy and the things that we, or uh, character traits, those are things that we do, but this is actually Christ explaining, this is who I am. They also show that Jesus is God, that he is Yahweh, because he alone is holy in an absolute sense. Now, there are two ancient Greek words for true. One means true and not false, and the other means true and not fake, as in authentic, original. The ancient Greek word used here for true, alathenios, is the second. It's the idea of a real, of an authentic Christ, a genuine Christ. Now, Jesus, Jesus is true in all, in all who he is. He is the real God and the real man then he says, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens. Uh, do you, if you need notes, they're right there on the counter. Sorry, I would... Sorry, <laughs> Sorry Jason should have jumped up and got those for you. Sorry about that. Um, he who has the key of David. Now, Jesus showed he is also the keeper of the keys and doors. This quotation is actually... A reference to Isaiah chapter twenty-two, verses twenty through twenty-three. Now, remember the Bible cross-references itself. How many times, roughly, does anybody remember? Seventy-six thousand times. It's an unbelievable number. Seventy-six thousand times. It's all verified too. To cross-reference itself, it shows the integrity of the Word. Jesus expressed His power and authority, especially to admit and exclude. Now, what Jesus knows about the Church of Philadelphia again, the mindset that I would hope that we could entertain for at least a moment is as though Christ was writing to the church at Three Rivers. I'm not saying that we are the church of Philadelphia. I'm asking us to consider what is he writing to us. Does this apply? He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have little strength. That's a curious statement. You have little strength. What does that mean? You have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. What is he talking about here? So let's let's break it down a little by little. I know your works. Jesus said this to teach the seven churches, um, specifically the church at Philadelphia, that he had served God well, in diff- they had served God well in difficult circumstances. He's saying, I listen, I know what you're doing. I see it. You've served God well in difficult circumstances. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. The church in Philadelphia had an open door set before them. Now, an often, do- often an open door in Scripture speaks of an evangelistic evangelistic <laughs> opportunity. Am I saying that right? Evangelistic. Evangelistic. I don't know why I hyphenated that. Um, and we see that, that kind of reference. We uh, see it. Paul refers to that type of open door when he addressed the uh, church in Corinth the first and second time, and also the church at Colossians, Colossians 4, chapter 3. Jesus told them he had opened the door of evangelistic opportunity, and they must go through that door. So what is the door he's talking about? Now, in its history, Philadelphia had a great evangelistic calling. The city had the mission of spreading culture and language through the whole region. How does this translate today? Or rather, what do we see today that translates culture all through the world? social media would be the first thing that came to mind. Now, Jesus opened the door for Christians of Philadelphia to spread the culture of his kingdom. So we see kind of an opposing ideology there. We're not there to spread the culture of the world. We're there to spread the culture of his word. Jesus told them to see that they had this open door. He's telling them, he's admonishing them. He's like, look, there is an open door before you. You have an opportunity. The mission field is here. I'm talking to us right now. The mission field is here. Jesus told them to see that he had to open this door. Now, sometimes God sets an open door of opportunity in front of us, but we don't see it. A man once came to Spurgeon and asked him how he could lead others to Jesus. And Spurgeon asked him, said, well, who are you and what do you do? And this man said, well, I'm an engine driver on a train. And Spurgeon said, is the man who shovels coal on your train a Christian? And the man said, well, I don't think so. And Spurgeon says, well, go back and find out and start with him. The guys you work with every day, the people you know and have a common uh, fellowship with. The mission field is all around us. Spurgeon believed that. Christ obviously believed that. Obviously, John and the authors of the New Testament believed that as well. Once we see the open door, then we have to walk through it. Now, God wants us to take every opportunity in front of us. That is what he's saying to the people in the church of Philadelphia. He says, I know your works. I know what you've been through, yet there's still an open door in front of you. So what are you going to do with it? Once we see the open door, we have to walk through it. There may be another sense to this open door because it seems that Christians in Philadelphia were excluded from the synagogue. Revelations chapter 3, verse 9, verse 9 that we just read. The open door may also speak of their opportunity to enter God's kingdom in contrast with exclusion. Come into my kingdom and depart from that kingdom. No one can shut it. We like to say when God opens a door, no one can shut it. Or when God closes a door, he opens another. It's a little, little off, but we say things like that all the time. But do we actually believe it? The emphasis, the emphasis is on unhindered openness. The opportunity is there. As long as the soul still breathes, they have an opportunity to hear the gospel and see the gospel in our lives. There is nothing that can keep them from their access to this door. Now, since it is Jesus who opens, and no one can sh- shut, and excuse me, who opens, that means no one can shut, and if he shuts it, that means no one can open. Once the opportunity is gone. It is gone. That is the overarching theme, overarching theme of the entire book of Revelation. Once the opportunity is gone, it is gone. That's what he's saying. He had the authority to keep this door open for the Christians in Philadelphia as long as he pleased. Now, David, now the reference, now this is a quote from Adam Clark. If you don't know Adam Clark, he's, he's not the, uh, the economics professor. Um, it's, uh, it's a theologian from about 100 years, or actually, he only recently died, actually. But he, he was born in the early 1900s. He said, David could shut or open the kingdom of Israel to whom he pleased. He was not bound to leave the kingdom even to his eldest son. He could choose whom he pleased to succeed him. The kingdom of the gospel and the kingdom of heaven are completely at the disposal of Christ. The sovereignty of Christ is displayed very explicitly in these passages. If I open the door, it's open. If I close the door, it's shut. That's what he's saying. God opens doors for ministry and ministers today. Uh, Vance Hagner said, I would like to bear witness that I have proved this Philadelphian promise of the open door through years of ministry and it has never failed. Promotion does not come from the south, east or west, but from God. And if we commit our way unto him and trust him, he will bring it to pass. God's man is not dependent on religious talent scouts nor his ministry in the hand of ecclesiastical officials. His headquarters is heaven, and his itinerary is made up by the Lord of the open door. I really like that quote. Because Jesus has opened the door, he gets glory for it. Okay, Neither wealth or influence, neither promotional schemes, nor the eloquence of the pulpit, nor the harmonies of musicians can give an effective ministry. The Lord alone has opened the door, and the Lord alone gives the increase. For you have little strength. Now, this term really stuck out to me. You have little strength. We see many references, especially in the New Testament, about having little strength, yet being called to be efficacious in regards to the application of the gospel. So what does that actually mean? Let's see if we can break it down. The term a little strength does not imply weakness, but real strength. They were weak enough to be strong in the Lord. What it's, sh- what it's saying here is we too can be strong, or excuse me, we can't be too strong, or too big, or too sure of ourselves for God to really use us. The dichotomy is pride versus humility. The church in Philadelphia had a poverty of spirit to know they really needed God's strength. What was one of the first sermons that Christ taught? I know you guys know it. I know everybody knows it. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're starting to see a correlation here. It is, uh, Vance Haver again said It's not a matter of great strength Not great ability But great dependability That's the key Samson had great ability But poor dependability If you remember the story of Samson A little strength faithfully used Means more than much strength Flashily and fitfully used The apostle Paul was a great example Of this dynamic of weakness and strength God's strength was made evident In his weakness 2 Corinthians 12 Verses 7-10 through 10 have kept my word and have not denied my name. The church in Philadelphia was faithful to Jesus and his word. The idea behind uh, have not denied my name is not only the exp- they expressed their allegiance to Christ, but they lived in a way that was faithful to the name and character of Christ. That's what he's saying here. You've lived in a way that is faithful to my name and my character. Now, some churches claim that great faithfulness to the word of of Jesus, but deny his name or his character. They represent the manner and style of Christ as something very different than what the Bible actually shows. Remember, the Bible says things, but it also teaches things. The Bible says things about Christ, but it also teaches, like the word, my favorite reference is the word the Trinity is not found in Scripture, but we know the Bible teaches it. Okay. Ecclesiology is not found in Scripture, but we know that church government and structure is, is found within Scripture. The Bible says things, but it also teaches things. Okay, so we're going to look at the features of the church in Philadelphia. They had evangelistic opportunity. Christ says, I have set an open door before you. They had reliance on God. They had little strength. And they had faithfulness to Christ. You have kept my word and not denied my name. Now, in some ways, these features seem unspectacular. Not a big deal. They should be commonplace among churches. Yet Jesus was completely pleased with this church. He didn't have anything bad to say about them. And it was the simple things. Faithfulness to his word and his character nothing negative to say that that really impacted me the church of now a guy named barnhouse said the church of philadelphia is commended for keeping the word of the lord and not denying his name success in christian work is not measured by any other standard of achievement it is not a rise in ecclesiastical position it's not a rise in the number of church uh, members that you have or, or best selling author type statistics it, it has nothing to do with that It is not the number of new buildings which have been built through a man's ministry. It is not the crowds that flock to listen. How many people actually followed Christ? Think about that. How many people actually followed Christ? It is not the crowds that flock to listen to any human voice. All of these things are frequently used as yardsticks of success, but they are earthly and not heavenly measures. If you're familiar with a a man by the name of Leonard Ravenhill, he was... uh, he was a man that he was from England, but he preached in Texas for years. And a man once asked him because his church was so small, but yet he had a notorious following. Um, and he was having a conversation with this, this other minister from Texas that had a, you know, a big church, big buildings. And he, was, he had the audacity. It's amazing what you guys can do without God. <laughs> what Jesus will do for the Christians of Philadelphia. Now, he said he's going to do some things here. Really interesting statements, if, if there ever were one, if there ever were some. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept my command to persevere. I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test who dwell on earth. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan... now apparently. What I figured out is the Christians in Philadelphia were persecuted by Jewish people. That's, that's I think, kind of obvious, not the synagogue. However, these persecuting Jews were Jews in name only, um, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. In fact, they had no spiritual connection to, the, to Abraham or the people of faith. They didn't actually believe what the Bible said. In this, Jesus did not speak. He's not speaking against all Jewish people here. It would be entirely wrong for him to speak against all jewish people as a whole as the synagogue of satan or those who say they are jews and are not because we know that many people of the jewish faith came in to christianity jesus spoke of this specific group of jewish people in philadelphia who persecuted the christians during that period so we know it's a reference to a specific set of jews in that region so keep that in mind he's addressing people in a particular church in a particular region. So, he's not addressing Jewish people entire. I will come and make them worship before your feet. Now, what we see here, Jesus promised that he would vindicate his people and make sure their persecutors recognized that they were wrong and that Jesus and his followers were right. The idea is a vindication before self-righteousness or spiritual persecution. Now, God promised the church in Philadelphia would be vindicated before their prosecutors. God also promised Israel that the Gentiles would honor them and acknowledge their God, and we see that in Isaiah uh, chapter 45. But now the tables were somewhat turned, and these Jewish people will play the role of the heathen and acknowledge that the church is Israel of God. That was by Vance Havner. 1 Corinthians 14 speaks of unbelievers falling down in the midst of of Christians to worship God. This establishes that it wasn't Christians who were being worshiped, But God was worshipped in the presence of Christians. So what he's actually saying is not that they're going to worship you. They're going to fall down before you and worship me. That's an interesting way that he said it there. But once you look into it, it perfectly aligns with the rest of Scripture. And to know that I have loved you. And those were once uh, their enemies worshipped alongside them. They were destroyed as enemies. They now knew that Jesus had loved these people they once persecuted. The best way to destroy the enemies of the gospel is to pray that God would change them into friends. Persecuted people often long for justice against their persecutors. We see that in Revelations chapter 6, uh, when the, the martyrs are calling out, when will we receive justice? In a passage from a second century Christian shows this uh, by the name of Tertullian. I found this quote from him. What sight shall make my wonder, what my laughter, my joy and exultation, As I see all those kings, those great kings groaning in the depths of darkness, and the magistrates who persecuted in the name of Jesus, liquefying in fiercer flames, than they kindled in their rage against the Christians. That was Tertullian. That's a pretty strong statement. I like it, though. I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the world. Jesus also promised them protection from the hour of trial coming unto the world. Now, most Bible scholars see this hour of trial spoken of as a prophetic reference to the, what's called the messianic woes. Now, if you're not familiar with what that term is, messianic woes is basically any kind of thing that a typical Christian would go through in regards to persecution. It's unique to Christians um, in regards to persecution, and it's been throughout church history it was called the messianic woes. Uh, the great tribulation which preceded Jesus' earthly kingdom, and Jesus promised to keep these Christians from that hour of trial, to test those who dwell on earth. Another interesting statement here. The test is directed against those who dwell on earth. So what is he talking about? This phrase is used nine times in the book of Revelation. It's very interesting phrase. And it speaks of those who are not saved. To test those who dwell on earth is a reference to those that are not born again. They dwell on earth. They're earth dwellers. Uh, we see that specifically in Revelation chapter 7 verse 8. 17 verse 8, excuse me. Um, it makes the it's the term is synonymous with the lost it's another way of saying the lost those who dwell on earth and those who dwell on earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world the test is actually for unbelievers keep you in the from the hour of trial does not the, the excuse me does this imply an escape before the great tribulation or does it promise protection in it i don't know how to answer that question what i found is it it Basically, both sides of, of Protestant theology believe it could be either or. Okay, those who believe the church uh, will be here on earth during this great time of tribulation focus on focus on Jesus' command to persevere. He is a very strict command. Stand strong in the faith. Persevere. However, persevere is in the past tense, showing that it is something that the Christians had already done before the hour of trial. So the perseverance he's talking about here is showing in this letter, is talking about something they had already done, uh, which has not yet come upon. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. The promise is a reward for past perseverance, not the equipping to persevere in the future. As uh, John Walbert said, as far as the Philadelphia church was concerned, the rapture of the church was presented to them as an imminent hope. They look forward to this occurrence okay now what jesus wants the church in philadelphia to do hold fast to what you have the church at philadelphia must not depart from its solid foundation of the gospel as described specifically in verse 8 so we see they have evangelistic opportunity reliance on god faithfulness to christ now these things can and must continue among the church in Philadelphia, but will only happen as they hold fast to what they have: that no one may take your crown. Now, if they failed to hold fast, their crown might be given to another. The idea, excuse me, the idea is not that it might be stolen by another, but it might be given to another. This was not a crown of royalty. It was not a crown because of royal birth. This is a crown of victory. Um, The reference that we see, the same word was used as the crown that was given to the Greek athletes when they competed in the games. Jesus encouraged his saints to finish their course with victory and to play the second half, as it were, just as strongly as they played the first half. Vance Habner said, never forget that the man most likely to steal your crown is yourself. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the wellspring of life. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. You are in no greater danger from anyone or anything other than yourself. A promise of reward. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him my name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Now, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar. Overcomers were told that they would be as a pillar in the temple of my God. It's an interesting reference, but what I found out is in that city, well, actually, in most Greek cities, that the names of accomplished individuals, whether it be politicians, athletes, um, businessmen, they would often be inscribed on the temple columns of the, diff- of the various temples. So when you went to worship, you would actually see their names written um, on the temple. Much, well, not much like, but kind of similar to some of the, if you've been to Washington DC, you see a lot of names of the fallen or uh, people of significance. It's, it's, a, it's a similar concept. It's actually probably the same concept. The ancient city of Philadelphia suffered from frequent earthquakes. Now, when a building collapsed in an earthquake, often all that remained standing were the huge pillars. Jesus offers us this same strength to remain standing in Him when everything around us crumbles. The pillar holds up the building, the only thing supporting the pillar is the foundation. True pillars in the church support the church, and they look to Jesus as their support or foundation. He shall go out no more. The overcomer would have a place of permanence and stability with God in contrast to an uncertain place in this world. John Barclay said, the citizens of Philadelphia lived an unsettled and tremulous life. Whenever earthquakes, uh, earthquake tremors came, and they came often, the people of Philadelphia fled from the city out into the open country to escape the falling masonry and the flying stones which accompanied as a severe earthquake shook. Then, when the earth was quiet again, they returned. In their fear, the people of Philadelphia were always going out and coming in. They were always fleeing from the city and returning to it. It was kind of a commonplace thing, apparently. I will write him on the name of my God. I will write on him my new name. The overcomer, John Barclay also said, the overcomer has also received many names of God, the new Jerusalem and the new name of Jesus. Jesus. These names are the marks of identification because they show who we belong to. They are marks of inti- intimacy because they show how we are privileged to know him in ways others are not. The works together, This works together well with the image of a pillar that we see in the city of that time. Now, a general exhortation to all who are here. Christ closes all of his letters with the same exhortation. Very interesting exhortation. He who has an ear let them hear. Who gives you the ear? We all want to hear the praise and encouragement Jesus gave to the church at Philadelphia. Who wouldn't? Philadelphia, Oh, excuse me, if we will be like this church, we must stay on that foundation, which was Jesus's name and Jesus's word. We must also depend on their source of strength, which was Christ himself, not themselves. Uh, Guys, that's all I have for for this letter. It was actually kind of a short letter. Any questions? Okay, good. (laughs) Thank you, guys. (laughs)